Hi, you're listening to The Get, the podcast about finding and keeping great marketing leaders in B2B SaaS. I'm Erica Seidel, your host. Lately, I've noticed something that all my best CMO candidates do. When they hear that a company wants to, say, double in revenue, they make sure to ask a particular question. How exactly do you plan for the growth to come from? Our guest today reminds CMOs to take the reins for growth planning. You'll hear from Jay Gaines, who now runs marketing for the insurance tech company AgentSync and is the former CMO of Serious Decisions. You'll hear about mistakes to avoid when starting to scale. Spoiler alert, and this was surprising, don't hire too heavily in demand generation. You'll also hear about the importance of hiring fast and hiring for diversity and equity and inclusion. And you'll hear about what candidates are looking for today and how that's different from before. Jay, welcome to the show. Let's talk about key things to avoid as a CMO embarks on a scale journey. You know, I think the main thing, and, and by the way, all these things are a little bit connected. Uh, the main thing to avoid is letting the scaling of the organization impact negatively the focus and purpose of marketing. Um, now, inevitably, as a company scales, you're going to have a lot more products um, that are going to be launched. You're going to add complexity as you expand into new vertical industries, into new geos. All those things are going to expand the scope of marketing's work for sure. But the other thing that happens along the way is that a lot of random projects come up and people aren't quite sure where they belong. And the default always seems to be to, that, you know, marketing can do this, right? They've got limitless capacity. Sure, just throw it to marketing and they'll take it on. So you want to avoid allowing that to happen. And there's a few ways to avoid that. The first is to constantly be kind of marketing, marketing internally, right? So being sure to reinforce with the CEO, the head of sales, other leadership in the company, the role that marketing is playing at the business as it scales. And like I said, that will expand somewhat, but you always want to make sure that there's a shared kind of common understanding of what it is marketing is here to do for the business. That's important. The second thing to do is, and it usually falls to the CMO to do this, and this might be a surprise for some folks, but to seize control of that strategic planning process at the corporate level. I'm not talking about just marketing strategic planning, but I'm talking about strategic planning for the business. And when I say seize control, I don't mean that the CMO necessarily leads the entire thing, but it usually falls to the CMO to step up within the business and say, okay, well, I understand that we are doing some planning and we are intending to hit this revenue number, for example, and expand maybe into these geos. And at a high level, I understand what we're trying to accomplish it as a business. Usually it falls to the CMO to say, okay, but we have to go a click or two deeper than that in our strategic planning process and really define how it is we're going to hit those revenue targets. And what it means for us as a business as we expand into new verticals or into new geos or scale in terms of the number of people we have here. And that's important because if you don't do that, what will inevitably happen is marketing will be asked to treat everything across the business equally. For example, at my business, we're scaling very fast right now. We have very clear revenue targets that we want to hit next year. But I had to work with the head of sales, head of product, uh, the founders, and really get at, well, when we think about hitting that number, what products sold to which audience segments do we expect to contribute what percentage to that growth? 
And when I'm armed with that information, which we quickly got to, thankfully, we're a very kind of operationally mature business. But when we got to agreement on that, that's the information I need to know how to focus marketing's investment of resources and effort. So we're not spread like peanut butter across everything the business does equally. It also puts me in a position to do the most important work as the CMO, which is protect, well, create and protect focus for the marketing organization, because invariably every product has a product manager that has a number on their head. You have sales teams that are oriented around different parts of the business. And as they observe marketing, investing more in one part of the business than another part of the business, you're going to have people come to you and be like, Hey, what's going on? Why aren't you giving the part I care about as much attention as this other part? So you want to be in a defensible position to just say, well, look, we've all agreed that, you know, this other part is going to contribute more to our growth than the part you care most about. So I'm investing more over there. So it really kind of creates an environment where there's shared understanding. And I, as the leader of the marketing team can help everybody understand why we're doing the things we're doing. And oh, by the way, not doing all those other random things and treating everything equally across the business. I think that's great because it really puts marketing kind of in the driver's seat of growth, which is what we're all talking about. But I think a lot of marketers, they they kind of, you know, they say, like, I'm, I'm going to inherit the strategic plan from the CMO and then I'm going to do my marketing. But you're right. There can be this kind of gap between like, you know, CEO can set the plan. That plan might be we're going to double in two years and we're going to increase our ARR growth rate to blah, blah, blah. Right. But then it's easy to fall into these random acts of marketing or this, you know, what I like to call like a vending machine kind of marketing where it's like, you know, oh, hey, we're just going to, you know, press on the belly of the marketing person and, you know, like a campaign is going to come out Um, or, you know, like, you know, or a new, you know, I I don't know, sales enablement toolkit is going to come out. So I can totally see that if you've scaled, you know, marketing um, at several companies now. How often do you revisit that plan? Because it would seem that every once in a while, you know, you you might want to go back and say, okay, well, that person has been asking for marketing resources. Maybe we actually do want to allocate some resources to that. So, uh, so I'm curious about revisiting the plan and also the the corollary of like revisiting the budget. Well, you can't be too rigid, right? And and you have to adapt as you go, especially. If you're at a relatively early stage company, which typically are the companies that are scaling the fastest, right? So things change over the course of a quarter, not just a year, but things can change pretty, pretty quickly. So you do have to be flexible and willing to adapt. Um, so you want to be revisiting it almost constantly. And in fact, to that end, the the idea that, okay, well, we have to re- revisit the marketing plan, for example, um, based on shifts that are happening at a high level in the business, in the business's plan, because you're learning as you go, everybody's learning. To make it easy to revisit that marketing plan, I do this uh, thing that I call a marketing plan on a page. And it's literally, my mission is to get the marketing plan on a single page that lays out our primary objectives and how they link to the primary business goals, how we're executing to achieve those goals, how we're measuring it, and the risks and dependencies that exist that are gonna get us there. It doesn't get into marketing activity planning, that's separate but it kind of gets into the strategic plan for marketing. And if that's in place, and again, it's linked nicely to clearly defined business goals, when you do have to revisit it, it's easy to do. And you can have a rational conversation about how things are going to change. And again, if you can go back to the corporate strategy and the corporate goals that are hopefully very clear, 
what you can say is say, okay, well, it appears like we need to change because this other thing has changed, but that means we're not going to do this other thing. Right. So you can kind of do the, a bit of, I don't want to call it horse trading, but it's kind <laughs> of trade-offs and make it very clear to people that, you know, we have X amount of resources, X amount of budget. Are we going to get more budget? Typically the answer is no, but you never know these days, actually, it's increasingly yes. <laughs> you can, you can have more budget. And if uh, you can agree to that, you can say, okay, well, um, if we're going to do it, um, then there's a few other things that we're not going to do, or we're not going to give this much attention to. And again, if you, if you have that starting point of agreement on focus and how you're going to grow, if anything changes, the trade-offs become pretty clear, pretty obvious, something increases in, in importance and another thing diminishes, and you can kind of adjust your, your resources accordingly. What's harder to do is adjust people accordingly, right? Moving budget around is relatively easy. Changing up some programs um, and tactic mixes and that sort of thing is relatively easy. But as you're scaling, you're also building a marketing organization that's designed to do certain things. Hopefully you're not just building it randomly. And that gets a little bit harder. So especially when I'm at earlier stage companies where I know change can be anticipated, it's going to come. I try to populate my team with people who are multi-position players, right? People who, yes, they have strong skill sets, for example, in product marketing, but guess what? They've done a little bit of customer marketing as well, and maybe they've got a little demand in their background. So that as things change, people are able to wear a few hats. Um, it's really important that people can be flexible. And I also, as I'm bringing people on, I kind of get them ready for that. Um, I kind of make it very clear that, hey, you're joining, joining a company that's at this stage. We're scaling quickly. We're going to be learning as we go. So we all have to be flexible. We all have to be willing to wear a bunch of hats. And guess what? Our roles might shift a little bit as we go along. Are you down for that? Is that something mm -hmm. that you're okay with as you join us? That makes it a bit easier, but people change is the hardest, I think. Can you talk about an organizational misstep? that you made at some point? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'd be happy to. So, uh, let, oh, let me think. <laughs> I, the, the problem isn't finding one. The problem is picking one. Um, I, I've, I've become successful through a series of mistakes that I've learned through <laughs> in my, in my career. So I would say probably the biggest one that I made, and this was probably my first CMO role. And I was building an organization essentially from scratch. And it was in a company that had been around for about 20 years, but was just releasing some new products and extending into new markets. So we were scaling pretty quickly. And when I joined, there were two people and I grew us to about 27 people over the course of about a year and a half. My background was very much oriented around digital marketing and demand. I had some product marketing background and some other things as well, but I was really focused on demand and I completely over-rotated um, around demand as I was building out my marketing organization. And I brought on a lot of people who were really good at demand. I made that part of the function just really big, kind of too big. And I forgot the fact that demand needs to be fed by all kinds of other stuff, like really great product marketing and really great content and all sorts of other things and really good comms and messaging and all that so, uh, I kind of failed at creating all the demand I expected to make, cause I just had too many demand focused and experienced people and not enough of the other people that were going to feed that demand engine. It was just a lack of foresight and, and frankly, 
being too focused on what I knew best, if that makes sense. That's so interesting because I think a lot of CEOs, you know, they're like, I mean, God bless them, but they're like overgrown salespeople in many cases. And they they (laughs) love the idea of a marketing organization that's over-rotated on demand. And uh, so it sounds good in theory, but until you realize like, well, you can pour more budget into it, but it doesn't, there are diminishing returns. And and you're right. I, I like to think of it as you need the product marketing or branding people to help you point and then the demand gen people to help you shoot. I mean, that's a very oversimplistic way to think about it, but, uh, but there is that piece. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it is. Exactly. And and to your point, uh, the CEO at that company was cheering me on the whole way. Love the fact (laughs) that I was building out this huge demand organization. Right. And since then, um, including at the company I'm at now in my last company, um, the same is true. CEOs, especially of kind of early stage SaaS companies, they want that demand and they're right to want that. But uh, in both cases, I've gotten a lot of pressure. Like, are you sure that's enough demand people? Which has offered me the opportunity to kind of really get into how demand is fed. Effective demand comes from kind of, it, it, it accrues over all the things that marketing does. And I would especially emphasize product marketing because you're right. I mean, it, we have to have a depth of understanding of not just our products, but our audiences and really strong positioning and competitive intelligence and great content and all of that stuff. And if those are in place, then demand becomes far more effective. So I've had to kind of do that repeatedly to avoid making the same mistake that I made that fir- in that first CMO role I had. Um, mm. Because it's easy to go along. Yeah, when your CEO is like, build demand. Of course, you want to just go along, but um, that's when you got to step up and explain. It makes me think of um, a former boss of mine who says, you know, today's brand is tomorrow's demand. And once I heard I that, that, I said, right, I know it's great, right? And yeah. so I started a list of things to say to a CEO who is thinking more on the demand side than on the brand side. And is, it might be over-rotating, to use your word. Are there other catchphrases that you have seen work to communicate that to a CEO? Because I feel like that's, I mean, that's like half of my job. That's half of a CMO's job is to kind of educate and guide a CEO and not get into so much of the weeds, but get them to to kind of see what's going to help make things work and make things grow. Yeah. So I don't know if they're as catchy as, as the one that you just had, but a few things that I've said and have said repeatedly that seem to resonate and seem to work are things like, I've talked quite a bit about the fact that awareness and trust fuel demand. Yeah. Right? Um, that's the context that creates the ability to engage audiences, build audience and convert audience because you could have the coolest product in the world, but if you're just like driving people to demos without them understanding who you are, without them trusting you, any of that being in place, chances are you're not going to be very effective at doing that. Obviously, you know, content is king. Content is the, also the fuel that drives the demand engine is another big one. That's become less of a problem. But as recently as, you know, six, seven years ago, I literally had to sit down with some people and just explain to them why, yes, we have to invest in creating content. I guess the catchphrase I use around that is what marketing should be delivering to our prospects all the time is value. It's all about value. And there is no value in asking people to watch that demo video or fill out that form. 
all of the value is in that content that's created. Oh, and by the way, brand as well and awareness and trust is built if you can deliver value over time. The other thing I've been thinking about lately is, you know, there's always this brand versus demand kind of thing. And I think now there's a growing awareness of the holistic kind of approach to marketing. And I'm seeing more and more CEOs want the demand and the brand, you know, kind of together. I think there's just this concern that the brand person is going to be like, you know, kind of typical B2C person who might or the perception of a typical B2C person is just going to go and find an agency and spend a million dollars and that's going to be so expensive. And so what I've been thinking about lately is what you really want is the the kind of the tight cycles of test and learn, not just for, you know, your performance and your demand gen, but also for branding. And 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 so I've been asking people about, you know, how quickly, like, can you test out a message? How do you test out a message? How do you swap it out, et cetera, which I think can be kind of a helpful way of thinking about it. Yeah. Testing is difficult when it comes to that stuff, I find. I mean, yeah. in, in the world of demand, I mean, obviously testing a subject line or a call to action is pretty straightforward, assuming you have a big enough audience to do relevant A, B and multivariate testing and all of that. But testing messaging can be um, a lot harder and it takes a little bit longer to figure out what's actually working and resonating and what's not from mm-hmm. a kind of a positioning and messaging standpoint. Mm-hmm. The way I like to do it is that it's not just marketing's job. Obviously, you want to do your work up front. You want to pass things by actual customers and prospects and talk to your salespeople and all that. Well, I'll give an example, a tangible one. We're launching, we just launched a new product in my company earlier this week. And um, it's pretty groundbreaking. It's pretty new concept. And we had to be very cautious about how we message around it and position it because without getting into too much detail, it could change the way people perceive our company. And it could provide an opportunity for our competition to misposition us if we didn't kind of get it just right. Mm-hmm. And I'm brand new. So I spent a lot of time talking to customers and people who have been at the company longer than myself. But now that it's launched, one of the things I set up right off the bat was a feedback cycle from our frontline people, our salespeople, our customer success people who are going to be talking to the recipients of this messaging all the time and ask them to kind of constantly create feedback, but also set up a series of regular meetings where we're going to sit in a room and I'm asking them to tell me from their point of view, how it's going, because it's not always visible to us in marketing as immediately as it is to those other folks. So that helps a lot. Yeah. I like that. That's, that's awesome. And you're right. It's like, you're going to get sick of your messaging well before your customers will. And that's probably a good thing for you to be, you know, ahead of that. (laughs) (laughs) So we talked about organization stuff. Is is there a really unique organizational decision that you have either seen or implemented yourself that that funnily worked, um, but you didn't expect would work during a, a kind of period of rapid scaling? That's a good question. I'm, I'm trying to think. Marketing organizational design is something that I've done more of than I care to like, even even think about. <laughs> because as you know, I spent 10 years as an analyst as yeah. well, working with CMOs. And one of my areas of expertise was organizational design. So I've done it across dozens of companies at various scales. And I'm, I'm trying to decide there's this demand center thing, but that's more yeah. like companies that are at scale. Mm-hmm. I think for companies that are smaller and scaling quickly, Probably the most unique one and the one that I still get pushback on quite a bit. And in fact, I'm hiring this person, my new company right now, is this idea of a senior leader who is 
head of campaigns, right? It sounds logical and pretty obvious, but when you're a relatively small company that's scaling pretty rapidly and you're the head of marketing, oftentimes the pushback you'll get is like, well, why is that necessary? We're pretty narrowly focused. We're not that complex in how we're going to market. Oh, and by the way, isn't that your job um, as the head of marketing to play that role of head of campaigns? Because the way I define a head of campaigns is somebody who is helping to coordinate activity across marketing, make it cohesive and programmatic to drive the desired optimal outcomes that you're trying to drive. And at a relatively small scale of company, you would say, well, yeah, that's definitely something that the, the head of marketing can and should be doing. But I found bringing somebody in who owns that role completely and all the time is critically important and plays Again, this effect of focusing and aligning within marketing, everything that we're doing in a huge way, because I, as the head of marketing in this rapidly scaling company have many, many jobs, and I can kind of give that a bit of my attention. And if it's only getting a bit of somebody's attention, it's not getting enough attention. So it's one of those things that I found to be very valuable. And that person oftentimes ends up becoming kind of my right hand person. And in fact, I will say this that uh, the last person who had that role for me is now CMO of a really great company in their own right. And the person who had that role before that person is also a CMO. So it's kind of this, this path to CMO role because you're, again, organizing a lot of what marketing is doing, doing a lot of coordination across all of what marketing does. And again, it sounds like something that a big company would have, but not, you know, a smaller company. But I think it's critical very early on. And how is that role different from a head of demand gen? Good question. So for example, the role I'm hiring for right now is head of demand and campaigns. Uh (laughs) So I oftentimes blend them together and the same was true at Sirius. And um, it's different in the sense that a head of demand, what I found is if you're just kind of director of demand or Mm -hmm. VP of demand or whatever it is, you are very exclusively focused on designing and executing demand programs that generate leads. You're focused on end-to-end demand management and you're working with ops to measure it. Whereas this campaigns person is taking a more, much more holistic view and saying, okay, well, when I think about all the work we're doing across brand and comms and product marketing and digital and all of those things, how do I make sure that they are accruing to cohesive programs that drive ideal demand outcomes? Mm -hmm. Um, And I should mention without getting too deep into it, that this role becomes necessary when you take a specific approach to your go-to-market strategy. And I take a campaign framework-based approach to go-to-market. Um, it was something that was developed at Sirius when I was there. It's something that I've implemented many times. I've seen it work over and over again. And it basically aligns, again, all sub-functions within marketing around a set of programs and a mix of tactics to drive optimal outcomes. And the reason I blend demand into that role is because, you know, at the stage I'm at, and usually when you're scaling rapidly, the primary outcomes you're trying to drive are, are demand outcomes, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. so that's why I blend them. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, that's going to be great for uh, folks to hear about. So we talked about organization. Let's talk about hiring. Um, one hmm. thing that people can struggle with is, should I hire fast or should I hire, you know, hire slow and fire fast? Can you talk about how you've thought about it? Like, what's a CMO to do? What's your perspective now? In my two and a half months in my current role right now, I've probably spent 60% of my time on hiring. 
And that's painful because there's so much else to do. But I also know my greatest risk of not being able to do what I know I need to do for the business will be not having the right people in place. So I, I have to give it time. That means writing really good job descriptions, reaching out to my network and engaging them in every way I can. Talking, well, talking to people like yourself. I think I've reached out to, <laughs> reached out to you a couple of times along the way. It's really critical. And then engaging the, the rest of my business as well. So I get our COO, our head of sales, other people involved in the hiring process too, and the interviewing process. So it's not just me making these decisions along the way. And as my team grows, my team gets involved in it as well. You know, my current company, Agent Sync, we are scaling very, very fast. I think I was like, you know, number, I was in the low seventies, two and a half months ago, and we're surpassing, we've surpassed a hundred people. And we're, we're just adding more and more and more very quickly. And we, as a leadership team know that our greatest risk to us not hitting our number is not getting the right people in place fast enough. Um, and that's across everything from engineering to customer success, to sales, to marketing and to everything in between program management, you name it. Yet we made a deliberate decision as a team. And this was top down from our founders that we're willing to miss our goals to slow down hiring a little bit, to make sure we hire the right people, but also hit our diversity, equity, and inclusion goals, which I can tell you is having the effect of actually helping us bring on talent a lot faster. A commitment to DEI, for example, and a commitment to work-life balance that is tangible and very real is the kind of thing that's a differentiator today. And we find that people care about and they want to join companies that are truly committed to that and see companies taking action, not just speaking to it. So, for example, I think I shared this story with you on the work-life balance thing as um, we've been onboarding and bringing on a lot of people. Everybody who's a go-to-market hire, right, in sales and marketing and product, uh, the CEO still talks to. It's kind of the final stage in that interviewing process. We're going to get past that point pretty quickly, but we're still at the scale where we can handle that. And the CEO has a new young daughter at home. So as I was hiring my initial hires when I first joined and said, well, we got to set you up to talk to Niji, our CEO. Um, there were moments where we said, oh, well, Niji can't do it after a certain time because that's family time. He, he spends that time with his daughter. And when these people then joined the company, they told me, they said that was the deciding factor hearing that your CEO set aside that time for family every evening was all I needed to hear to know that this is the kind of company I want to be at. And it was unintentional. It was just kind of a nice side effect. But also being able to tell the story and demonstrate through our actions and how we bring people on that we are, you know, really dedicated to achieving very aggressive DEI goals is something that really appeals to a lot of people and causes them to want to be with us. So this kind of decision we made that, hey, we're going to slow down to get this right has actually helped us accelerate in a strange way in terms of our ability to bring on the people we really want. I think that's great. You know, I think it just speaks to the fact that what people want out of their jobs is changing. You know, they're kind of, I don't want to say looking for a family, you know, but, but there's a little bit of that. But it's it's like, you know, when a company and an employee come together, it's 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 like you're hiring the whole person. And you're um, kind of like ingesting the whole company. And yeah. that is very different from how it used to be. 
And what I'm seeing on the hiring side is, you know, I always ask people, like, what are the top three things that you're looking for from a company? And, you know, it used to be like, oh, you know, upside was key and I need this industry and I need this growth rate. And that can still be important. But what I'm hearing more and more is this pivot towards a really great culture, a really great leadership team, integrity, transparency, authenticity. And it makes me realize that that those things that you you think are just kind of like this uh, not a throwaway thing that, OK, the CEO is busy with, you know, his kid, you know, but these these signals become almost, the, you know, the most important thing to kind of push, you know, to put forward. It's not that they're intangible, but uh, they kind of need to come across naturally. Right. It's yeah. not the kind of thing that I think can be forced. So it's got to be authentic. It's got to be a, just an actual part of the culture and and the way that the business is for it to be effective, I think. And and I think you're right. I think, you know. With COVID and so much that's happened over the past year and a half plus, um, I think people's values have shifted in in very tangible and real ways. And, you know, I think that, you know, people want to be part of successful businesses that are growing, but they also, for the most part, and I know I'm making generalizations now, aren't all that interested in being part of growth at all costs kind of companies. Like, you know, sacrifice all elements of your personal life to like achieve these goals, I know I personally have no interest in being part of that. And, and I think that's pretty common these days. You know, it's not yeah. as cool as it once was to talk about how sleep deprived you are and how you have no life because all you do is work. I think that's kind of out right now. And yeah, uh, I'm glad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. The world has changed and companies need to kind of change yeah. along with it to get the top talent. My last question for you is just, can you share your favorite interview question? What is the question that you find most revealing when you interview people for your team? Sure. It's a tough one because I have a few that I really, really like okay. to ask. So I, I, I guess the one I'll, I'll, I'll talk about, and it sounds like it's a very cliche question, but I like to think that the way I do it is a little bit different. And it actually links to what we were just talking about, because I do think that part of the shift that I kind of perceived happening in the world is people allowing themselves to be a little bit more vulnerable um, than we used to allow ourselves to be, right? Um, and just more human than we used to allow ourselves to be. So one of my favorite questions, and it starts with me telling a story about myself, um, a very self-effacing story. And I picked from a few where I just failed miserably at something like I've really got something wrong or something I'm really not good at. And I, and I kind of tell it in a very tangible way. Like I really mean, and I make myself vulnerable. And then I ask the person to tell me a similar story about themselves. So it's kind of cliche in the sense that it's like, Hey, what's your greatest weakness kind of question. Mm -hmm. But again, I do it in such a way where I make myself vulnerable and I'm seeing if this person who I'm talking to, who by the way, is in an interview situation, which is, you know, difficult to begin with is willing to be honest and vulnerable in that situation and kind of be very open with me. Because very often what people will respond with was, are things like, well, I care too much or I just work mm. too hard. And that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody to get pretty honest, be like, you know what, here's something that I really messed up or that I'm really not good at. And by the way, I don't think I'm ever going to be good at it. That's real. I love hearing that from people because it just tells me that they're human, they're willing to get vulnerable, and they're going to be transparent, um, which I care about. There's a lot of stuff I'm not good at. And the extent to which I'm honest about that with others and myself is the extent to which I can augment myself and build really good teams and be effective. So so that's a big one uh, that I like to ask. The other one, 
because I have to say two. <laughs> Sorry. And the other one, but the other one is usually at the end, I ask them, is there anything I didn't ask you that I wish I, that you wish I had asked you? Um, it's just fascinating to see what people come up with. Some people are totally stumped. Other people come out with really kind of revealing things because if there is something that they wish I had asked that I hadn't asked, it's because there was something they really want to tell me about themselves that they haven't had a chance to. So it kind of gives them a window to do that. So that's another. Do you favorite. get more personal or more professional stories from that? Yeah, it's fascinating. I get a mix of the two. Usually, I, I would say it's weighted towards more professional, but very well. I wouldn't actually say that. It might be weighted towards more personal. Usually, if people tell me something about themselves that, that they're really proud of. So I think it's a mix of the two, but I just find it interesting to see what people say. Yeah, where yeah. they go with that. It great. also helps me get better too, because I get great ideas for other questions to ask when they tell me what I should have asked that I didn't. Yeah, it's interesting because I think so much of interviewing on both sides is just getting comfortable with the other person. Sure. And that while there is a, a professional benefit to, you know, somebody who can admit that they don't know it all or have some soft spots that they need to augment themselves around. I think a big piece is it makes the the interviewer feel more comfortable, like, oh, I'm actually getting at the real person here. And it's not right. just some, you know, polished interview thing. So right. well, thank you so much for sharing, Jay. This has been great to chat with you and um appreciate all of your insights on on scaling and org design and hiring and um really appreciate your insights for the show. So thank you again. Well, thank you, Eric. It was really fun to be here. That was Jay Gaines, who runs marketing for SaaS InsureTech, ScaleUp, AgentSync, and earlier was the CMO of Serious Decisions, sharing some hard-won do's and don'ts on scaling and focus for B2B SaaS CMOs. Next time on The Get, we'll do a deep dive on budgeting for marketing during growth with CMO ScaleUp queen Kristen Hambleton. Don't miss it. Thanks for listening to The Get. I'm your host, Erica Seidel. Hiring great marketing leaders is not easy. The Get is designed to inspire smart decisions around recruiting and leadership in B2B SaaS marketing. We explore the trends, tribulations, and triumphs of today's top marketing leaders in B2B SaaS. This season's theme is solving for the scale journey. If you liked this episode, please share it. For other insights on recruiting great marketing leaders, what I call the make money marketing leaders rather than the make it pretty ones. Follow me on LinkedIn. You can also sign up for my newsletter at theconnectivegood.com. The Get is produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions.